Would you please stand with me? And we're going to try something a little bit different today. Um, we're going to read the passage that we're going to study all together. Um, and so it'll be up on the screen and I ask you to read it with me. So here's the, here's the deal when we read as a group, right? Some people, some of you are fast readers, some of you are slow readers, so we all have to kind of take the same da-da-da-da-da-da. But that tends to make us all sound really boring. So we have to find some kind of balance there. So it's the Word of God, so you can be excited about it. But don't get so excited that you run on ahead of the rest of us. But uh, here we go. We're going to read um, Colossians 1, verses 3 through 8. Please read with me. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we are excited to come this morning to hear from you. We come trembling knowing that um, your word is um, alive. It is sharp. It pierces um, our souls. And so, Lord, we ask you to do heart surgery today on us. Father, we pray that you would um, just be kind and compassionate um, in how you speak to us this morning through the word. Encourage our hearts. Lord, I pray for those this morning who need to be challenged and convicted that you would do that work. Pray for those who are hurting and suffering that you would comfort them. Lord, we thank you for the singing that we were able to do to, to lift you up and to lift up your son. Father, we are so grateful that you sent Jesus to be the wrath-bearer in our place. We would be silly to be here this morning, foolish to do this, if the truth wasn't that you have saved us. And you've saved us, not merely to keep us from hell, but you've saved us for life on this earth and life on the heavens and earth to come to praise and glorify your name. So equip us to do that through the teaching of your word, through the Sunday school hour, through our own personal devotions, through community groups, through discipleship. Lord, continue to form and shape us into the image of your Son. As we dive into Colossians, Lord, I pray that you would bless your word. Keep me from saying anything that would detract from it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are uh, privileged... Uh, here at our church to support through our missions giving um, Partners International. And Partners International partners with um, national missionaries uh, all over the globe um, to reach the unreached. And so we support um, several groups. One of them is um, a, a group in Vietnam uh, who is reaching out to um, all over the country to those that don't know um, the gospel, and I wanted to to read to you an, an update from Pastor Daniel, the ministry leader um, of the group that we support. And here is what uh, he has said about recent work going on in Vietnam. We keep on increasing the number of believers in our churches in five large cities of Vietnam. These cities have large populations with many immigrants from the countryside who come to the city to earn money. The number of believers in these urban churches is between thirty five hundred and four thousand. We are concentrating on factory workers. There are many young workers who come to the city for work. The hardship they face makes them open-hearted to the gospel. At Christmas, we had three big evangelism events for more than 2,000 workers in the factories. Our workers are sharing the gospel among 22 ethnic tribes. The number of ethnic churches is more than 60, and we have 23,000 total Christians in our 245 churches. And that's just a little bit of the good news that's going on in Vietnam. There's lots of church planting and reaching out to those, even in the north of the country where communism has a much greater pull and hold um, still. Uh, but there are people that are open to the gospel. In fact, um, one of the people that uh, I was able to talk to reported that they had a big outreach event around Christmas 
and the government had okayed it. They didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. And um, more than 4,000 people showed up at this event. And um, the, the singing and the preaching was um, a great encouragement to the believers, and many people came to know Jesus. And so I read that to say, what does that do to your heart? Um, if that doesn't stir something in you, th- then something's wrong. <laughs> Um, to hear that the gospel is going forth and growing and bearing fruit in places that we'll me- probably never go to um, is encouraging and exciting and humbling and kind of puts us in our place. It is a good reminder um, of, of what's going on around the world. Um, that whether we're pessimistic about the church in America or optimistic about the church in America, um, that God is the one who grows his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we see that happening um, in Vietnam. We see that happening here in Garden Grove. The reason I bring that up is in the beginning of Colossians here, we see Paul giving thanks for this very thing. And I think it is a good example for us. So as we look at Colossians 1, 3 through 8, I don't merely want us to look at what it says. I also want to, to consider what Paul is doing so what is Paul doing in crafting the words the way he is and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? So in your notes, I just want to say four quick things about what Paul, I think, is doing here. Remember, Pastor Ron last week in introducing the book of Colossians said that Paul has never been to Colossae. He did not plant this church. This is not a place where he stayed for a long time and preached the gospel and raised up leaders. Um, this is actually encouraging because it, it means Paul doesn't have to go every place. Um, that others are spreading the gospel around. And so Paul, never having been to Colossae, never having planted the church here, is writing to these brothers and sisters, as we saw in verse 2 last week, to the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae. Four things that I think he's doing. I think, one, he's befriending them. And so we'll look at this in the wording, but I think that Paul is trying to, to come across as a friend, as a fellow brother, as a worker for God. He is befriending the Colossians. Um, second blank, he's encouraging them. Uh, he's encouraging them. Doesn't it encourage you when someone um, thanks you or is thankful to God for you and tells you about it? Um, that is a cool thing to hear. That is an encouraging thing, and I think that that is what Paul is doing as well. He's also reminding them. He's reminding them. You'll see as we move through the passage that he's reminding them of several things. He's reminding them of the gospel. He's reminding them of the centrality of faith, hope, and love in the Christian life. And he's reminding them of the faithful work of one of their brothers. And that brother, for the fourth blank, is Epaphras. And I think he's backing Epaphras here. He's he's kind of giving him a boost. He's kind of coming behind him and saying, Epaphras is an approved workman. He is um, one of my guys, which is good to hear from the Apostle Paul. And he is backing Epaphras. So those are some of the things I want you to think about as we go through the passage. He's, He's doing all these things in what he's saying. And so let's dive into the text. Um, point number one, thankfulness should be directed to God. Thankfulness should be directed to God. Verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Very interesting. Paul says this in very uh, many of his letters. He says something similar to this in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and in Philemon. He is an encouraging um, writer. He's an encouraging pastor here, saying that he is always praying for them. Now this immediately if you think about it, um, can kind of kick you in the teeth. Oh, Paul's always praying. I'm not always praying. We think of uh, when Paul talks about pray without ceasing. Uh, I, would, I would kind of encourage you today that that doesn't mean you're praying 24-7. You can sleep. That's okay. Um, that doesn't mean that you're not fulfilling this. What, what it's talking about is whenever he prays, he is thanking God for the Colossians. So every time that Paul goes into an extended time of prayer, he is praying for the Colossians. And by extension, the Romans and the Corinthians and the Philippians and the Thessalonians. He is praying for these people. And always here indicates a regularity. It's a discipline that Paul does this every time that he prays. And it's also important to see who he's thanking. Who he's thanking. He's thanking God. Now that's not astonishing. Um, We have found lots and lots of letters from this same time period written from pagans to pagans. And they start their letters very much the same way that Paul does. He greets the people. 
Uh, they greet the people and they do some kind of thanksgiving to one or more gods. And so Paul's just borrowing the way that, that the people in his time wrote letters, but he's changing it up enough and he's specifying his God. So look at it again. We always thank God. Which God? The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he's not just any God. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really important because in a, in a pagan world, um, that, that the Colossians lived in, there were multiple, multiple, multiple gods. The Romans were an equal opportunity worshiping community. Um, when they came in and conquered people, they did not make force them to worship new gods. In fact, they said, hey, we beat you guys, but we kind of like your God. He's kind of cute, so we'll worship him too. Let's all worship these gods together. We'll add them to the pantheon and we'll continue to worship. And so um, that was just not a big deal. In fact, we tend to get really pessimistic sometimes um, about the church in America and um, what's going on in government and what's going on. Oh, this is, we've never faced these problems before. These are so horrible. And we, we forget that the Roman world was, was almost exactly like ours. Um, there was idolatry everywhere. Now, you may have seen some idols recently, um, physical, actual idols, or you may have been driving in one, or you may have been watching one, or you may have been looking on the internet at one, um, but there is idolatry everywhere today. There was idolatry everywhere then. And so Paul wants to specify who his thankfulness is to and which God he is talking about. He is talking about God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is very similar to how he writes in most of his letters, how he's going to identify the Lord. But I also want you to notice that, that he gives God the credit. So God gets the credit for whatever's going to happen next. Whatever, whatever Paul is commending these people for, and he does that in many of his letters, he commends the people that he's writing to, um, which is a good practice. Um, and and he, he says to them good things, kind things, helpful things. But the fact is, his thankfulness is not primarily to the Colossians. His, his thankfulness is primarily to God. And that's just recognition for the work that's going on. That is proper recognition of what is happening. You'll notice that I did title the sermon today, Gospel Growth, Recognition and Action. And this is part of it. Recognizing God for His work. And again, he, he, he starts with God the Father and moves to the second person of the Trinity. He talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think... If you have a background in church, which most of you do, that we can, our, our tongues can kind of roll over Lord Jesus Christ real fast. Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. We, we're used to saying that. It kind of rolls off our tongues. Um, it, it's kind of just easy to say, and it's also easy to forget what he's doing there. Um, a lot of people in this world think that Jesus Christ is a first and last name. Um, our ignorance uh, exposes itself often in this case. But I just want to quickly take a look at those three words, Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. Um, the word for Lord is owner or master. Um, it would have been used of a slave owner. It would have been used of, a, of someone who owned property. Um, it was used by the 12 of Jesus. They called him Lord, Master. And so that is, is a word that we often forget what is going on in that word. That there is someone who is in supreme authority. And so he ascribes to this Jesus Christ lordship, saying he is owner, master, and it's the same word that the New Testament authors use to translate the Old Testament word Yahweh. And so this is also a way of saying that this Jesus is God. This is not just a man, he is God in the flesh. The name Jesus um, is the same name as the name Joshua. In between Hebrew and Greek, there are some changes there, but the, essentially the same word, Yeshua, Joshua, and it means Yahweh saves. A very interesting. I think that God may have had a plan in his own son's name, but he named Jesus. He told Joseph to name him Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Uh, in the Old Testament especially, um, your name meant something. So I doubt most of us... Um, actively think about what our name means in our daily lives. Uh, I've asked several of our youth and they don't even know what their name means. It's just the thing that you call me and identify and when I hear that I turn and say yes. That's, that's all that a name is. But in the Old Testament especially and even into the New, a name was very, something very important. 
the, the, the way you were named, the, the way that your parents decided to call you was incredibly important for your life. And so it is huge to know that God decided to name his son and told Joseph to name his adopted son Jesus. Why? Because he'll save his people from their sins. Christ. Christ is not a last name. It is not a curse word. Um, it is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah. And so when we hear about the Messiah in the Old Testament, when it came over into the Greek, it's Christos or Christ, which means anointed one. So you think of the Old Testament, you think of Saul being anointed, you think of David being anointed, the prophets were sometimes anointed, the priests were anointed. Um, this is a way of designating them for a special office. And so the Messiah is the anointed one, the one who has had the anointing oil poured over him to designate his Messiahship, that he is the one who will save. And so as we see Lord Jesus Christ together, there's an abundance of meaning that should explode on the backs of your eyelids when you blink after you read this, because it is really important to see that this is not just Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's keep moving. Who is this Lord Jesus Christ? Because as we move on through the book of Colossians, Jesus is the central figure again and again. Paul is going to lift him up, praise him, ascribe some incredibly controversial things to him. And so here at the outset of the letter, we need to know who this person is. The Lord, the owner, the master, Jesus, the one who saves, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Incredibly important. And so this is who Paul is thanking in his prayers. Let's move on to verse 4. When we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And here we see a familiar triad in the New Testament. Paul likes to use this faith, hope, love, right? end of the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. Um, you'll see that throughout Paul's writings. You can go see it um, dozens of times through his writings, um, specifically in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and in the end of the book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you'll see him using faith, hope, and love. And we need to look at these terms. We need to remember what they mean and see what he's talking about. So, Paul has never been to Colossae, and so he's hearing, right? So he's having a report sent to him. Um, he can't just bring up the smartphone and see, oh, the Colossians are doing great, listen to their sermon on the podcast. He's got to hear someone coming to him and telling him this. And you remember last week that Pastor Ron explained that Paul is most likely writing this letter from a Roman prison. Um, and so he, he has to have a messenger come and deliver this news to him. So he's heard about it, and since he's heard about it, he's been thanking the Lord. And what did he hear about? He heard first of their faith in Christ Jesus. And we hear this word a lot today, faith. It's thrown around, it's kind of batted around, and usually it's just used by itself. Faith. But faith can't be by itself. It, by definition, it has to be in something or someone. Um, if I have faith, that's just a nebulous term. Faith for what? In what? In whom? Towards what? And so we need to, to remember that faith must be in something or someone. And there's a, an interesting story of um, John Patton, uh, a missionary from two centuries ago, who went to the, Hebride, the New Hebrides Islands um, in the Pacific and tried to reach these people um, with the gospel. They were, some of them were cannibals. Um, when he arrived there, very soon after, his wife died and his newborn son died, leaving him all alone. Um, he faced years and years of persecution. He spent an entire week up in a tree trying to escape from the cannibals. Um, but this man won their trust and began to translate the Bible into these people's language. And when he started translating the New Testament, he had to figure out, how do I say faith to these people? What word do I use? And after a lot of struggle, he finally decided that the best way in the language he was translating the Bible into that he could describe faith was this. Faith is to lean your whole weight upon. To lean your whole weight upon. And so the picture is of leaning onto something, trusting that you can put your entire weight on it and it's not going to give way. It's not going to fall over. It's not going to be something that lets you down. 
So that's some of what we mean when we say faith. Faith must be leaning our whole weight upon something or someone. And of course, that someone is named right there in the verse. Verse 4, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. This is whom the people of Colossae put their faith and their trust in. In Christ Jesus. And it's very interesting to see that this, this vertical faith in Christ Jesus leads to the next term, which is love for the brethren, which is a horizontal love for the saints. So keep reading verse 4. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So picture Paul in chains, sitting in prison, and he hears from probably Epaphras, who we'll talk about later, coming and reporting. Hey, Paul, here's what's going on in Colossae. Here's what's happening. And, and I can almost picture Paul going, ooh, I've never been there. Let's hear about this. Can you just see Paul? He's, he's the guy who wants to go where Christ hasn't been named. He wants to go here, preach the gospel and share the gospel here. And he's never been to this place. So I can picture him wanting to hear. And what he hears is great news. The Colossians have put their faith in Christ Jesus and they also have loved each other. Um, last week, Pastor Ron had a, a map up on the screen that showed um, the three cities that were very close to each other, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Three cities where they're all named in the New Testament, where the church took root, and they're all very close to each other. And so some speculation here is that w- with persecution and with false teaching going on, that there is this love for the brethren that would hopefully go in between these three cities along this highway. And the word is that the Colossians have love for all the saints. And it's not some nebulous kind of like, we love Christians. Yay. That's easy to say. Um, this is, this is a, a real, tangible, shown in real life kind of love. Love for the saints, for the holy ones, for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Verse 5 continues on and explains to us what's going on here. And it gets to our last of the three in the triad. Verse 5, Because of the hope, the hope laid up for you in heaven. Um, sometimes Paul uses the word hope as like an attitude that we need to take. Like we need to be hopeful. We need to hope for something. But in this case, hope is, is a noun. Um, if you notice that, you can say, Because of the hope. There is a hope laid up for you in heaven. So there is a hope. It's in heaven. It is an objective thing that we have to look forward to. In fact, if you just look down your page, look at verse 23. We'll get here in in several weeks. Um, But Paul says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Then go down to verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so this is a recurring theme that Paul is going to talk about. He he specifies it in all different kinds of locations in the scriptures, but I do want us to go to the book of Romans and see how he uses it there. So turn back in your Bibles, just a few books, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Speaking of hope. Speaking of crying out to the Father because we are adopted as sons and daughters, go to verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. How? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we, know, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here it comes again. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there is this it, this something that we are hoping for. So we're actually hoping for hope. We're hoping for the hope that is laid up for us. And that word in the Greek is very interesting. Laid up for you in verse 5 of Colossians 1. It's laid up for us. Paul uses this same word to talk about the crown of righteousness that's awaiting him in heaven. It's laid up. It's waiting there. It's kind of like on reserve, and once he gets there, he can claim it. 
And so he has this hope to look forward to. The book of Hebrews calls this hope an anchor for our soul. So that when we're on the seas and the wind blows and the waves are high, that our anchor, the hope, keeps us from being tossed about. This is an incredible thing and a helpful thing for us to remember. Because why have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if there is no hope for a glorious future? Why love others if it doesn't matter in the end? And so Paul puts the faith and the love contingent upon this hope. If there is a future hope, then we can purposefully have this faith and this love. If there is no hope, then really it's just kind of a waste of time. And so if this hope does exist, then we should be the kind of people that put our faith in Christ and love our brothers. This hope is stored up in heaven. You don't have to go there, but Peter also talks about this in 1 Peter. And he says, he says this, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Where is it? It's kept in heaven for you. Same word, it's kept there. It's on reserve. You get there, you sign for it, it's yours. There's something to look forward to. And that's the hope that we have. And and really, we don't think about this very often because our hope is in the next car we can buy or the next vacation that we can take. Our hope so often is in things that are that are temporary and transient. And, and yes, it's good to like look forward to those things. Um, like I'm really looking forward to my vacation this August. I, that I'm, that's a good hope. But that is not a lasting hope. Um, what's going to happen if the Lord takes someone precious out of your life? What's going to happen if the doctor comes into your office and says, I got some bad news? If there's merely just this hope for a new TV, if there's just hope for your team to win the Stanley Cup or something, how transient. But if there's a real hope that's stored up for me, that's waiting, then then you know what? Then that, that's not to say that those things aren't hard, but I have something elsewhere, something other to look forward to that is better than what I have to look forward to in this life. Titus 2 talks about the glorious hope, which is the returning of Jesus Christ. And so that is what we look forward to. We look for Jesus to come back, and that begins our inheritance of this hope. And it's very interesting that the hope here is not with us. Like, it's it's in heaven. It's somewhere else. And this, I think, points out something that I really wanted to just briefly talk about. And you'll see that in your notes. There's um There's three blanks there. Um, and the, the, the blanks are just real simple. You were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. See, the Bible uses all these terms um, to describe our salvation. Norm- normally we talk about saved, past tense, are you saved? My friend got saved. They're saved. When were you saved? Um, and, and oftentimes it's past tense. And that's good because the Bible talks about it in the past tense, right? You're saved by grace through faith. It happened at a determined point in time. In 1 Corinthians 6, something we've been talking about in the high school and college group as we've been discussing homosexuality, um, Paul goes through this long list of people that will not inherit the kingdom of God because of their actions. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you, and then best word in the Bible, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Past tense is a point in time where you crossed over from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And yet, Paul can also use phraseology like 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, where he says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So so we were saved a determined point in time, and yet we know this to be true, we're being saved, right? I imagine that there might have been in some families this morning some degree of arguing and hustling and trying to get out the door to get to church. (laughs) I know that doesn't happen very often, but that might have happened. (laughs) There might have been some thoughts in your head that shouldn't have been there. Um, we, We know this because we know we are being saved. We continually need to be saved by the Lord. And there are other passages that talk about that as well. And, and lastly, you will be saved. Paul even talked about that in Romans 8. 
There's a hope we're looking forward to, to, to seeing. And then later on in Romans, he also says these words in Romans 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. That was interesting. Okay, for salvation is near, nearer to us now than when we first believed. So this salvation has not quite reached us. We're, we're getting closer, but we're not quite there. And so we see this, this aspect of salvation, this aspect of faith, hope, and love, that we were saved, we are being saved, and yet we will be saved. And so this is our great hope, to look forward to the time that Jesus started something in the past and he will be faithful to complete it when we receive our new bodies, we reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth, free from sin forever. That is what we have to look forward to. Well, let's move on to point number two. Point number two is the gospel is more than a message. The gospel is more than a message, and this is important. So I'm not saying it's not a message, okay? It is, in, it is basically, at its core, a message. It is a proclamation. It is news. But it is also more than a message. And we'll see this in the rest of verse 5 and verse 6. Let's read those together. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just a, a side note, you might look at some of your verses there, and the, there's periods and commas and verses that aren't lining up. Um, the guy that actually put the verses in the Bible, legend has it, and it's probably just a legend that he did it on horseback, and so every once in a while you get kind of some weird verses, and you're like, why did he stop the verse right in the middle of the sentence? But that's kind of the case here. There's just some awkwardly placed verses. I know I just stopped in the middle of a sentence. But in the Greek, 3 through 8, Paul loves to do this. It's one long sentence. So don't use Paul to teach your kids good uh, sentence structure, because he is the king of run-ons. But we'll see here, even in verses 5 and 6, as he, as he goes through and describes the gospel here, that we need to be reminded of what the gospel is. Um, that is a word that's thrown around a lot. We've used it a bunch. You've heard it since you were a little kid, most of you. Um, it's a genre of music. Um, it is used in ways that, that are not originally intended. But I found this interesting. I actually thought, what, is, what does gospel mean? Where did it come from? How did we get here in English? Um, the word in the Greek is euangelion, which just means good message or good news. So how did we get from that to gospel? I looked it up. The old English, it was Godspell. Godspell, which meant God, good. God meant good, not the God we're talking about, but it was a shortened form of good. And then spell. And literally it's like <laughs> when someone's going to cast a spell on you, it's that same word. But that meant a spell meant a message or news. And so it was a good, a God spell, a good message. And that's how it came to us in English. In the Greek, it's euangelion and just means good news. And that's how it came to us in English. But I found that very helpful in my own thinking because gospel can be misconstrued. It can be misunderstood. Um, it's a, again, it's a genre of music. So how does that work with how we understand the gospel? But Essentially, gospel means good news. Um, that is at its basic core. Gospel equals good news. And there is only one gospel. Go to Galatians chapter 1. Paul has some very strong words to say for people that try to change the gospel or introduce a new one. He says it's not really a gospel at all. He says if an angel from heaven comes and tells you a new gospel, don't believe him. Don't believe him. He, he, he begins to use harsh language about someone who's going to change the gospel. So it is clear that we need to, to remember there's only one gospel. There's only one gospel. And in verse 5, we see that it is also called the word of the truth. The gospel is the word of the truth. In a world now where truth can have any meaning that you want it to have, your truth, my truth, everyone's truth, someone's truth, constructed truth, changing truth, it was the same way in, in the Roman world, with so many worldviews clashing and religions combining and being kind of hybridized. 
um, this kind of thing happened and we have a pluralistic society that doesn't know what truth is. In fact, Jesus talks to Pilate and talks about the truth and Pilate's response to him is what? What is truth? <laughs> and so that's not something new. It didn't happen with postmodernism. It's been around for a long time. But this gospel is truth. Um, Mark Dever, a pastor um, that I appreciate and love reading, identifies what the gospel is not. And this is important for us to hear. Mark Dever identifies what the gospel is not. It is not simply we are not okay. It is not simply that we are not okay. It is not simply that God is love. It is not simply that Jesus wants to be our friend. And it is not simply that we should live rightly. Now, all of those things are true. We, we do understand that Jesus does desire friendship with us. Praise the Lord for that. We do understand that God is love. The Bible says that. No one's going dis- to dispute that. But we live in a culture where we have conflicting thoughts. People that don't know anything about the Bible know that verse. God is love. So if you oppose homosexuality, if you oppose something else in the culture, how do you call yourself a Christian? God is love. And then that just gets this this label that, that just dominates all of the rest of Scripture. And understood in that context, it doesn't mean anything. It just means God is tolerant. If we understand the way that God is love, we'll look to the Scriptures and dig a little bit deeper than that to find out what he is saying. And so we've got to make sure that we are the people that know the gospel, that get the gospel right. We sang about the gospel this morning. You were saved by the words of the gospel. And so we need to know what the gospel is. I contemplated doing what I do at Reality Check and taking some time out and making you turn to your neighbor and share the gospel with each other. But I thought I might get some emails about that. So we won't do that. But I want you to think, if I did make you do that, could you share the gospel? And make it say more than God is love. Or more than we're not okay. Jesus wants you to be happy. Do we have a deeper understanding of what the gospel is? And searching throughout the scriptures, including 1 Corinthians 15, we see that the gospel is good news precisely because there is bad news. There is bad news. And that precipitates good news. Right? If everything is going well, good news is kind of sweet. But if, if there is bad news and we receive good news, that we're desperate for good news. I just think of, as we think about Memorial Day, I think of just some of the, the actions during World War II, some of the desperate times that the Allies were in trying to defeat the Nazis. And there were times where they were desperate for any shred of good news. Um, the Battle of the Bulge, it's a bulge because the Allies' line was pushed back and back and back and bulged out. And the Nazis were making one last dash to break through. There was necessity of hearing good news in the midst of bad. And so here's the bad news. You're a sinner. And that's not popular in our culture to tell somebody. It's a lot better than when you identify and say, not only are you a sinner, but so am I. We are sinners. Lucky us, we were born in sin. Um, I am a, a father of two little girls Total depravity is on display in my house all the time. I didn't have to teach my girls to be sinners. I didn't say, hey, your mom's not around. Here's how you lie. Here's how you be mean. Here's how you throw a tantrum. It just happens because they're sinners. They have a sinful nature and we are born that way because Adam and Eve chose wrongly and we inherit their nature and we are sinners. That's bad Bad news. It's bad news because not only are we sinners, but we're created by a holy God who created us to be, who created sinless creatures. And yet Adam and Eve, our first parents, decided to rebel against God. They sinned. And so now we not only live in a state of sin, but we also commit sins. And we commit sins of commission against each other. And we commit sins of omission by not doing the right thing. That is how we sin, by doing things and not doing things. And so you can't get away from it. Everything's covered by those two categories. We're sinners against the holy God, and a holy God cannot stand unholiness in his presence. And so the only way that a holy God can respond rightly is to destroy, crush, and get rid of unholiness. And so you and I deserve hell 
for all eternity. That is what we deserve because of our rebellion against a righteous and holy God. And yet, this God, of his own free will, of his own plan before the foundation of the world, planned to send a Savior in order to pluck us out from destruction, in order to save us from destruction. And that is the God that we serve. And how did he do that? He sent his only son. He sent his only son to become a human being, to live in our frailty and our weakness, and yet Jesus lived without sin. He would have been a great baby. Sinless. He would have been a horrible sibling. You could never pin anything on him, right? You think of Jesus' little brothers. Jesus did it. Mary, no, he didn't. <laughs> He's the son of God. Ah, man, there's no way getting around that. And yet this Jesus as a boy and then all the way into his manhood never, think about this, he never sinned. Can you even imagine what that's like? Can you imagine a day without sin? A day untainted by sin? Thought processes not tainted by sin? Jesus lived that perfect life that we couldn't live. And then he died the death we should have died. The picture is that God is going to send his righteous wrath and Jesus steps in between sinners and God and absorbs the wrath. And when you think of wrath, don't think of God getting ticked off and mad like a, like a human father who just kind of loses it, snaps. No, this is a holy and righteous wrath, just wrath. He should feel wrath and anger towards sin or he's not a good God. You fathers, you're not a good dad if you don't really care about the bad things going on in your kid's life. If you, don't th- if you don't think, I need to do something about this, this is wrong, I need to act against this, then you're not a good father. And our father is a good father. And so he poured out his righteous wrath on Jesus Christ, on the cross, in our place, as a substitute for us. So in the Old Testament, you read all this bloody mess going on with all these sacrifices. It just prefigures the bloody mess of Jesus on the cross. And whereas in the Old Testament there was sacrifices daily and annually, Jesus did it once. Because he lived a perfect life, he was able to get on that cross and step in the way of God's wrath to save us from it. And God's wrath will be satisfied. It will either be satisfied forever upon sinners in hell or it will be satisfied upon Jesus on the cross. And the good news is that Jesus came taught 12 guys who taught more guys who taught more guys who have reached all around the world telling people you're sinners that's the bad news here's the good news God loves you and God sent Jesus to die in your place so that you can be in relationship with him that's the gospel that's good news that's fantastic news and here's where I'm convicted why don't I tell people that why don't we tell people that it's good news. In fact, we think it would actually be better news to, to not let somebody know that because they might get mad at me. That, that, no, that, that's, not, that's not sharing the good news. The good news is God has come and God is a savior. We need to share that with the people around us because it has been shared with us and saved us. We must move on. The gospel here next is, a li- is like a living organism. Notice how Paul talks about it. The gospel is like a living organism organism verse 6 it came to you kind of this passive thing where the gospel came to you they didn't come to it it's come to you as indeed in the whole world it's happening in Colossae it's happening all over the world it is bearing fruit and growing very similar to what God told Adam and Eve to do okay to be fruitful and multiply and the gospel is being fruitful and multiplying um, we see it here and we see it today, even in thinking about Vietnam and thinking about some of you who sit in this room who five years ago were headed to hell. And now you're not. It's growing. The gospel is growing. It's bearing fruit. It's like a living organism. And that's how he describes it. And this gospel is such good news that it can't help but bear fruit. It's a good plant. So in the gospels, Jesus sows the seed. If it lands on the right soil, it's growing. It is growing. Well, let's continue to move on here in the last section. We need to check this out. 
Verses 7 and 8, point number 3. Gospel action should be recognized. Gospel action should be recognized. And I'm going to cheat and use a little bit of the end of verse 6 here. Paul said, As it also does among you the gospel growing, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So they, they heard this word, they understood the grace of God, but that meant that someone had to bring it to them. And verse 7 shows us who. Just as you learned it from Epaphras. Epaphras is going to be mentioned at the end of this book. He's mentioned at the end of Philemon. It seems that Epaphras had heard the gospel either directly from Paul or indirectly from Paul, and then took it to Colossae and maybe Laodicea and maybe Hierapolis. So Epaphras is learning this church planting thing. He's trying to keep up with Paul and plant these churches. And Epaphras is the one that shared the gospel with him. And so Paul calls him um, two things here. Paul calls him a beloved fellow servant or a fellow slave. In the next sentence, he says he is a faithful minister. He's a faithful minister. The word there is diakonos, deacon, minister, servant. This is who Epaphras is. And notice what Paul is doing. Again, he's backing Epaphras. He's telling the Colossians, this is what I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, think about your buddy Epaphras. He's my boy. I love him. I'm behind him. He's a fellow slave. He's a faithful minister. So he lifts him up and he recognizes the gospel action that he took. And I just want to say uh, a few things here. You'll see some letters there in your notes. I just want to say some things about leaders, about those in the church who lead, about those who are faithful ministers. In Hebrews 13, we're called to imitate them. Hebrews 13, 7 says, look, notice their way that they behave and imitate them. So we should imitate our leaders. We're also called to obey our leaders, submit and obey to our leaders. Also in Hebrews 13, where, where it mentions assisting them. So we don't just obey them as automatons. Yes, I will do what you say. No, we do what they say in order to help them do their job well. And then lastly, we should pray for our leaders. We should pray for our leaders. Those are the things that we should do um, when we recognize gospel action. And so we should recognize our leaders. We should imitate, obey, assist, and pray for them. Lastly, verse 8, talking about Epaphras still, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is puzzling. This is the only time in the entire book that we'll see a reference to the Holy Spirit, which is weird. Um, Paul is the apostle of the Holy Spirit. He speaks of the Holy Spirit in all of his letters. In fact, some of them he camps out, talks about the Holy Spirit. And yet here, this is the first and last time that we're going to hear about the Spirit. And so we need to understand at the outset, it is the Spirit who enables. It is the Spirit who enables. Because that verse, verse 8, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The way the Greek is constructed is talking about basically a Spirit-empowered, a Spirit-enabled love. That this is a love that they couldn't have had before they were Christians. That it is, it is a love that was, that was bolstered, that was strengthened, that was supernaturalized by the Spirit. And so it is the Spirit who enables these things. And so as we look through verses 3 through 8 of Colossians 1, we see the, the Trinity mentioned, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We see three of the essential Christian attributes, faith, hope, and love. We see the actions that Epaphras has taken. We see the gospel growing, and we recognize that God is in through all of this. As we move on to the end of chapter, through chapter one and into chapter two, Paul is going to focus almost exclusively on the glories of Jesus Christ. And so that might be a little reason why he doesn't emphasize the Spirit as much because the heresy that he was dealing with in Colossae had to do mostly with the identity of Jesus Christ. And so he's going to focus almost entirely for a chapter and a half on the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus Christ above all powers and authorities, demons, cults, magic, and other things. So what we need to do, Village Bible Church, is we need to recognize who we are to be thankful towards. Who are we to be thankful to for what God is doing? 
That is to answer the question. We're to be thankful to God for what he's doing here at Village Bible Church. When we see growth, when we see ministry, when we see service, when we see exciting things, we should be thankful, first of all, to God. That doesn't mean we don't like thank people around us. <laughs> Someone does something nice for you, you can thank them. <laughs> That's okay. But our thankfulness, first off, needs to be vertical to God who has enabled this to happen, who empowers us for this ministry. And we need to understand that the gospel is not entirely dependent on your accurate sharing of it. It's important that you get the details of the gospel right. And yet we see here that the gospel is the power of God to what? Salvation. And so the gospel, it seems even here, is described almost like a living organism. And that's because God empowers his message to do work. So um, Jesus tells the parable of the farmer who goes out and sows the seed, does his farming work, and then what does he do? He goes home and he sleeps. And he comes out the next day and does the same thing. And he goes home and he sleeps. And he comes out and lo and behold, things are growing. Even while he was sleeping. And so we can be assured that when we share the gospel and when we share God's good news with others, that God works through his message. God is working even when we screw up the message. Get it right, but don't freak out so much that you don't ever share because I don't, wait, do I need to talk about this first or do I need to talk about this next? I forget my paradigm. God is working through the gospel and so let's be bold to share it and then let God do the work. We're not called to convert anybody. We're called to disciple people by sharing the gospel and watching God do the work in them. Let's do that. Let's do that as a church. Let's pray and ask God to do that even today. Father, thank you for this morning and the message of Colossians chapter 1. Lord, I pray for any in this room who do not know you through the gospel. Lord, I pray for self-righteous, pharisaical church people. Save them. Lord, I pray for pagan idolaters consumed with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Save them through the gospel. Give us boldness to share the good news. Help us not to cower in fear that someone might reject us. Help us instead to remember what might happen should we share the gospel and you work and transform a life. God, we pray for more baptisms. We pray for more salvation stories. We pray for more people coming to know Jesus and serving him here at Village Bible Church. And we pray for that all over the world. We pray that you'd enable our missionaries to share the gospel clearly. Help us to share the gospel well in the way we live our lives to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our fellow students, to our family members. Lord, we thank you for the work you're doing here at Village Bible Church. Continue to use us Help us to be faithful and reliable servants of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.